0: Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Well, hello. <laughs> We're up. <clears throat> um, so we got a lot of content to get through today, uh, and I am rather excited Uh, So we better hop right in. Um, uh, Welcome. Welcome to B-Sides. We are in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. uh, And we are going to study verses 13 through 17. So this should be a a good time. Um, There was a lot of things uh, I wanted to talk about on Sunday, but we just did not have the time. So here we are um, to go through them. Uh, before we we jump into verse t- um, uh, thirteen, and we're we're really going to start at verse twelve, um, because it, it it both concludes the the previous section and introduces the next. Uh, but before we get into to to the next uh, section, uh, it's helpful to understand that verses thirteen through seventeen are very similar to verses one through six. I'd like to read this for you. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tails swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman would fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,200 and sixty days. That section and what we read Sunday, verses thirteen through seventeen, are very similar. Both of them speak of God's provision for the woman. Seems to be the same woman. Uh, both of them speak of the dragon's pursuit of the woman. Both speak of the woman, of uh, woman fleeing into the wilderness for three and a half years. So, th- one of the things we have to do when we come to this text is we have to decide are these two sections describing the same event or are they describing two events that share similarities? Now, personally, I I could be wrong on the timing. I believe verses 1 through 6 to have already happened in Jesus' birth in the first century, and I think that's very easy to see. But then when we get to verses 13 through 17, um... It's really hard to see how this already happened. You know, a lot of people like to point to this uh, during the destruction of Jerusalem, but there's no historical evidence of anything like this happening at the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, so my postmillennial brothers, uh, you know, it, they really seem to, to struggle with this section. They have no idea what this means. Uh, and so then it all becomes analogy for the church's persecution through the centuries. Uh, but again, this is also describing a specific event, so I don't I don't know how that fits in that in that mindset. So, so to me, I think the the first section, the the Jesus's flight uh, into Egypt from Herod, uh, was s- foreshadowing another sort of flight. Um, into the wilderness so I believe verses one through six has already happened at Jesus's birth in the first century and verses 13 through 17 is describing the last half of the great tribulation just before the return of the Lord and that's my position uh, that's why I taught the Sunday but again when we're dealing with prophecy when we're dealing with things that have not yet happened uh, or maybe aren't even historically recorded. Uh, we we have to understand that there are a hundred different views that our faithful brothers and sisters are going to pick. So we we don't want to we don't want to ma- go to war over things that maybe haven't happened yet. <laughs> and furthermore, we don't want to make this book, which is describing the hope of the church, into a battleground of contention to the church. You know, not every hill is a hill to die on especially when we're dealing with things that seem to have not have already happened. Uh, so let's let's keep going. Uh, verse 13 is really where we pick up, but I want to start at verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in his great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to uh, to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the child but the woman was given uh, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. One of the things you realize when studying the ancient church fathers, is they often find symbolism in every single verse, passage, uh, typically sometimes a word, uh, in the Bible. Now, in the book of Revelation, that's a little bit more understandable because the book, as we John wrote in, in Revelation 1-1, this book was written in samino. Uh, it's been communicated to us in samino, uh, Greek for symbol. It's been symboled to us. So uh, th- there's lots of symbols in this book. And when you're reading the Church Fathers, whether you're in this book or not, they're always finding symbols. Now, as I was reading what the fathers thought of uh, this passage, many of them, like Andrew of Caesarea and Bede, uh, Bede, they they thought that the two wings were specifically symbolic of something. For example, uh, Bede thought that the two wings represented, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, I only ever read it. So it's Bede or Bede. Uh, he said that the two wings represented the old and the new testament. So he thinks the two wings that came upon the woman that fled her into the wilderness were the two testaments of the scriptures. And again, I share this to you guys because Revelation does make a very specific note that the woman was given two wings. It's that the 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 two there is definitely a point of emphasis that we should be aware of. It should be on our radar. Um, and so the church fathers hopped on that and they said it was the two testaments. Sometimes, you know, they can go to a million different things that are twos in the scriptures there. Uh, personally, I think the two wings, uh, it says like two wings, like the wings of an eagle, uh, are to distinguish it, uh, this, these wings from the multi-winged cherub that we've already been introduced to. So the cherub have multiple wings. But this is two wings, so we're not to confuse this with the cherub. We also see that they're the winged locusts and the locust horses. (laughs) Uh, They had multiple wings that had the wings in their wings. When they flew, they sounded like chariot wheels. Uh, and so this is distinguished from those creatures as well. So whatever this two-winged eagle is, it's separated from the winged creatures that we've been introduced to in this book. Again, I believe this to be the Holy Spirit as we connect the wilderness themes, the pillar of fire by night and the glory cloud by day. Uh, and, of course, there's a two there as well. I just caught that, by the way. Uh, verse 15 <clears throat> The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And notice this is not a rainfall, but a flood. Uh, like the Red Sea crashing upon the Egyptians. Uh, this water was meant to, for ill intent, to sweep uh, someone away. You know, if, if you've ever studied um, rainfall in in um, really arid, deserty places. I just made up a word deserty. Um, w- there's typically nowhere for the rain to go, uh, except down. <laughs> so when it rains where we are in Maryland, it goes into little riverbeds. It goes, the trees suck it up. The grass sucks it up. The soil sucks it up. The, the bushes, uh consume these things but when when it's in the desert and it's raining it, you'll you'll get these flash floods that happen very quickly uh you'll you'll get yeah that's there was a i'm drawing from memory now i think it was in the 50s could have been the 70s but i think it was the 50s there was a flash flood at the um ancient site uh ancient wonder of the world at petra you know uh the, that site at petra um and it flash flooded, and I think it killed fifty French tourists uh, just because when the water comes through, it comes flying through and it'll keep it'll pick you up and sweep you away. Uh, and that's that's what's being described here that he causes a flash flood of rage from his mouth to sweep away these people. Uh, uh, the, the the woman who again, I believe is messianic Israel uh israelites who come to faith in jesus christ and the reason i I think this is important for for two reasons one we don't want to say that it's all israel because that means people who have rejected jesus christ uh are god's people to be protected that's a very dangerous precedent, not to mention uh, that completely blows apart all apologetics and trying to witness to the Jewish people. Uh, also, that completely contradicts what Jesus said to the Jewish people in his day. Woe to you, for it's going to be better in Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Uh, not all of Abraham are of Abraham. So there has to be a faith component. Secondly, Uh, When we looked at the two witnesses towards the end of the Great Tribulation, it says that there were 70,000 people living in the great city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem already has lots of people in it, and they seem to make a pact with the Antichrist. So it seems for those who are not saved, they are protected by the Antichrist for a time. But the believers have to flee. Verse 16 But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Are those who keep the sorry, and <laughs> those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and He stood on the sand of the sea. I'm I'm doing a coffee fast right now, and this is my first day, and it is no, it's day two. It is not going good. I need lots of prayer. Um, three things. First, Satan isn't easily easily persuaded to stop. Now is he? Yet the ground opens up and swallows this water, which may be his army. Uh, and, and interesting, though, he, he stops pursuing the woman. Uh, as soon as the mal- uh, the earth opens up and swallows the water, he stops the pursuit and makes more with the war with the rest of her offsprings. Now, when God opened up the ground and, and swallowed the water, whatever this exactly means or however this exactly plays out, uh, the one thing we know for sure is that when God did this, Satan understood whatever it may mean. Satan understood what that meant. He better stop pursuing, <laughs> and we know this because he could keep pursuing the woman, but he he doesn't he doesn't even try. And it, and I I I'm imagining here that the Israelites, those who have fled might have refugee camps and, and the like in the wilderness uh, area, but he's not, they're, they're off limits. He doesn't touch them. Um, now, I was thinking about this. Why did Satan stop? Why did Satan stop pursuing? It's not like him. You know, he, he lost, he couldn't continue to, to consume, he couldn't consume the child because the child was taken up into heaven. So that he pursues the child up into heaven, and then the child is, and then Satan is kicked down to the earth. There's no more place for him in heaven, so he can't keep making war on on the angels because he's not allowed in heaven anymore. But there's nothing that seems to be stopping him from pursuing this woman. Uh, if water didn't work, he could try something else, and yet he stops. So this had me thinking of the wilderness period, and and and. Uh, this flight into the wilderness. And he pursues like Pharaoh. Um, But I kept thinking, where else in the Old Testament, thinking wilderness period, do we see the ground opening up? And we see it in Korah's rebellion. Interesting, Korah's typically... Uh, often associated a picture of immense evil, an apostasy, which we just read Satan making war against heaven. So this is a very tight connection here. Uh, and in the story of Korah, Korah incites a rebellion against Moses. He thought Moses needed to be overthrown and most likely, well, by himself. This is exactly what Satan is doing here in this chapter. He wants to overthrow Jesus because he thinks he's the rightful ruler of the universe. And yet he is not. I want to read this to you. Number 16, 16. Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer. 250 censers, you also and Aaron hit each his censer. So each man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the 10th of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the 10th of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So Korah said Moses was wrong and stirred the people up against him. And now we see Moses and those who believe he is from God on one side and Korah and those who want to follow his rebellion on the other side. And then it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, oh God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of the Israel, uh, of Israel followed him and he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground Opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you will know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So. They and all that belonged to them went down alive into shale, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at the at their cry, for they said, "Lest the earth swallow us up." And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to take up the censers out of the blaze and scatter the fire far and wide for they have become holy for as the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar for they offered them before the Lord and they became holy thus they They shall be assigned to the people of Israel. Taking all of this together, and isn't that incredible? Taking all of this together, the punishment of Korah was in two phases. First, the ground swallowed up Korah and his family and his companions. Then secondly, fire fell from heaven and burned up Korah's priests. Here's what I'm thinking. I believe Satan will stop his rebellion short his pursuit of the Jewish people into the wilderness after the ground opens up and swallows his armies because Satan knows if he persists if if, if he persists his priests his leaders will be burned with heavenly fire next and and his high ranking officials will be lost so he leaves the jewish believers in the wilderness and continues his pursuit of the gentile believers instead knowing that if he persists not only will he suffer an even greater not, loss, but as Numbers sixteen seems to allude to, that when Korah's priests were burned, it brought a national repentance and glory to God. So Satan, I believe, and and I could be wrong. But if this is all drawing off of Numbers 16, Satan knows if he persists, like the story of Korah, when that mouth opens up and swallows this river, he knows that next is the fire that falls from heaven. And if that fire falls from heaven, there will be a national repentance in Jerusalem. And of course, Satan knows the scriptures. And he knows the story of Zechariah. And there will come a time when there will be a national repentance in Israel. And when that happens, Christ is coming back and Satan's reign is over. And so that mouth of the, of the earth opens up and he, whoop, he stops what he's doing. And he pursues a new subject. <clears throat> Could be wrong. Certainly looks right to me. Uh, Verse, uh, secondly, secondly, our second point, concluding point. This one's really, really important to me. um, And it's something that I've been, I've been chewing on and maturing on over the last few years. I want to talk about persecution. You know, the Bible speaks so favorably of the martyr, it, it would be easy to think that when persecution arises, that Christians should immediately embrace martyrdom. But notice from today's text, what were the godly to do when persecution came? They were to flee. What was Jesus' advice in the Olivet Discourse to persecution? Matthew 24. Flee. Don't even go into your house and grab your coat. Run. Run. What did David do when he was persecuted by Saul? When he was chased, he fled. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Real quick, real quick. I just want to pause this. A lot of pastors take that verse and apply it to their preaching. They say they don't need any notes because God will give them their word, the word, um, when the time comes. And they do that every Sunday. (laughs) Uh, But that is not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about a very specific promise from god that when we are persecuted and brought before trial that god through the holy spirit will give you very specific things to say to glorify him in those moments this is not talking about a, a, a neglect in sermon preparation i can't tell you how many times i've heard someone brag that they don't use notes when they preach and i can't tell you how many times i think i wish you did Uh, So that's not what this is talking about. But anyways. uh, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father who speaks through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his children, the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So. If persecution that leads to martyrdom comes, we are to face that trial with great confidence and hope in God. But now, listen to what Jesus says next. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Did you see that? We are to flee. When persecution arises in one town, we are to pick up root and move to a new town. Now, if for whatever reason we get caught or trapped up or God leads us to stay, then we need to face persecution with strength. But we are not required to stay and be persecuted. I want to read another one. This is just after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ra- ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. When the killing started in Jerusalem... Many of the believers left, apart from the apostles, the believer, and a few devout people who felt they should stay. Uh, the believers fled, and Jesus told them to. He told them when the time was right to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. There was no. Here's the point: believers do not need to stick around and be slaughtered. Jesus instructs believers in in quite a few situations that when the time comes, flee. So let's put some uh, flesh and bones on this, okay? Let's say, you know, America is, I think, as divided as it's ever been uh, since our founding. And let's say... I don't think this is going to happen, by the way, but let's say there's a split in our union and there's a civil a civil war, whatever, whatever, at least a split in our union. And some states go one way and other states go another way. <clears throat> and let's just say, again, this is all hypothetical. Let's say uh, Group A <laughs> uh, decided it was going to imprison believers for hate speech. Now this is all hypothetical. This could never happen. Um, they were they would imprison believers for certain kinds of speech, uh, biblical speech, and uh, they would be tried and executed. And then the other side of the union, apart you know the B side, um, let's say that they were pro religion, pro Christianity. Now, if this happens, and again, tinfoil hat time, (laughs) if this happens, we would not be required to stay in a place that had forced imprisonment and execution for Christians. There would be no reason, there would be no obligation for us to stay and be abused. We would all leave, um, I I think biblically so, unless God really put something on your heart to stay, uh, which could happen, totally could happen. Um... We would we would flee. We would flee from this town and on to the next, uh, as we see often in scriptures. when martyrdom comes, the church is to stand bravely. But the church is not required to put themselves in a position to be martyred. Uh, in fact, Jesus often seems to encourage us to move on. Let the church grow somewhere else, and then hopefully we can come back to that land. Um, and you know, I and I, I'm maturing in this because obviously're we're, we're, Christianity in America has taken a not the most favorable turn um but the question I have is do we stick around and be persecuted you know like for example Zambia in Africa is a Christian nation with Christian bylaws do we all pick up and move to Zambia yeah I don't know um I don't think it's going to get to that but Um, These are things that need to be weighed on. And and what's the biblical response to this, not the the fleshly response? Um, You know, we have one more point, and so let's do it. (laughs) Uh, Thirdly, I spent a lot of time thinking about enduring Satan this week. And that's, of course, how I, I spoke on Sunday uh, but one of the things that I, I chopped oh, Saturday or Sunday before, uh, maybe Friday, before uh, Sunday was teaching, was I was reminded of one of the most beloved and important passages in the Old Testament scriptures, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read this to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk on talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates Satan is pursuing us and our families and he's pursuing us every day and godly parents and grandparents and elders are to be diligent in teaching the next generation and our children the word of God God says here when you sit when you walk when you lie down and rise so all the time The strong are to be instructing and encouraging the weak. And as we read of Satan's evil in chapter 12 today, the words of the Shema should be something in our hearts. That we must prepare our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and the next generation to know God and to guard their hearts against the lies of the evil one. Because let me tell you, The dragon seeks to devour them. He wants to devour them. He delights in devouring kids. If I may use another biblical language, an analogy from Paul. For the last 2,000 years, the church has been running a race. That's what Paul said. We're running a race. It's a race of faith. For 2,000 years, the baton of the church has been passed from one generation and on to the next. And it is every generation's job to hand the baton off to those who will be running long after we have stopped. It is, it, it, it is absolutely wonderful to have a strong faith in Jesus Christ, but the reality is there is coming a time when I, when you, will not be here anymore. And so all of us must take the baton that we have been handed And work at teaching and discipling the next generation to prepare them to run their race well, too. We must be proactive in preparing them for long races and dragon-slaying. And as the Shema points out, to use when we're walking, sitting, standing, all times to be teaching moments to teach people about the glory of God, about who God is, about what his intentions are. Um... So that not only that they may be built up and love the Lord themselves, but that they may endure. And then when their time comes, that they may have the strength to hand the baton to their next generation. So that's it. We're done. We had so much to get through today. And for those of you that made it, I love you. Uh, Let's let's pray, huh? God, we, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask for a wonderful day today. We ask that you would guide and protect us. We ask that you would strengthen us. God, keep us safe from the evil one. And God, we do pray that you would help us to pour into the next generation. God, open up opportunities to do that. And let us see the opportunities when they're there. And so we do love you, God, and we do praise you. And in Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. See ya. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word, to live the Word, to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore V. side